0: We're moving from Snowflake to Databricks today, and I want to motivate the discussion with a pretty really fun stat that comes from Gurkhe Oros, who is a friend and a reporter on the job market for software engineers. He wrote in his piece on Equity 101 for Software Engineers that someone who was a software engineer at Databricks who accepted an offer in late 2018, that was 50,000 options spread over four years. Uh, Databricks was valued at $1 billion at that time, Three years later, it was valued at 28 billion, which resulted in $6 million in compensation gains for that engineer. So pretty, pretty impressive growth. And we should listen to Ali Godzi, who is a professor turned CEO and billionaire to explain what Databricks is.
1: For this episode, we'd like to introduce Ali Godzi, CEO and co-founder of Databricks and adjunct professor in computer science at UC Berkeley. Ali, why don't you tell, tell a little bit about yourself and how you got
2: into the field of computer science and big data? Sure. Happy to do that. Um, you know, I mean, I grew up in Sweden from a sort of age of uh, four and uh, I think in third or fourth grade, my parents bought me a Commodore 64 and he had one of those tape recorders on it. That's how you sort of got this stuff working. And that uh, tape recorder was broken, so you couldn't really play any games on it. So... The only thing you could do is to use the built-in basic interpreter to start doing programming. So that's how I got started with the programming. So I started writing basic code on that Commodore 64, you know, in fourth grade or something like that. I love the references C64. <laughs> we, by the way,
1: we also like to introduce David Meyer, SVP of product at Databricks. David, why don't you tell a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the field of computer science and or big data? It's funny,
3: Ali was having me chuckling. I had this thing called the Sinclair ZX81. It had 1K of memory, and it had no way to input anything. So you had to type every program, and when you turned it off, the program was gone. And each key was a different command, so it was basic. But there was like, a, you know, four key and stuff like that, so it made it, you know, slightly quicker to type everything in every time. But yeah, I've been in enterprise software for a while now, and uh, very excited to join Databricks a few years ago when Ali pulled back the curtain and showed what was possible with big data and how we could help all these customers.
4: So going from one kilobyte to terabytes must be insane. How was your um, transition into the field of big data? What were some of the projects that you were involved with along the way? Ali, perhaps you could start with this question?
2: Yeah, so I came to UC Berkeley in 2009. And the timing couldn't have been better because around that time, pretty much we hit this thing called uh, Moore's Wall, which meant Moore's Law no longer was applying. And there was a lab upstairs with now Turing Award winner Dave Patterson. And he was saying they're not going to be able to make the computers any faster. So that's it, which meant that the new computer was a data center. So you're never going to be able to go to IBM and buy another supercomputer that can do all the stuff you need. Uh, you'll have to do it in a data center. And just to give you a perspective, at that time, Twitter was running pretty much all of Twitter on one giant machine with lots of memory on it. So this was around the time when computers essentially moved into a data center and the new computer was the data center. And we had to figure out how to do everything in there. So that was sort of the beginnings of how you would do, you know, cluster management at scale, the beginning of how you do data processing with things like Spark at scale. So it was like perfect timing to figure out how would we do computations on thousands of machines in clusters in the cloud if we had to do it again from scratch? So for us, it was awesome. It was kind of like, we always wanted to be born in the 50s. So when computer science took off in the 60s and 70s, we could have been there and invented whatever, the first operating systems. Now we got to do that again, because around 2010, there was this new computer and everything had to be kind of like rebuilt for that new computer, which was the data center.
4: So you mentioned your involvement with UC Berkeley Lab. How did you get involved with the Apache Spark project?
2: Yeah, I mean, all these projects were all part of that. You know, there were all these companies in Silicon Valley who were funding the UC Berkeley Lab. And, you know, they had these problems they were trying to figure out. You know, they, uh, Yahoo was one of the major ones. They were trying to figure out how to manage these thousands of machines. And we saw that more and more of them wanted to do machine learning. So they had machine learning use cases and not just one or two machine learning use cases, they had hundreds. And they were enabling the whole organization to use data and do machine learning on it. So, you know, we were going into these companies and peeking and seeing what they're doing. We're at Facebook, we're at Twitter, Airbnb, and so on. And we just wanted to sort of democratize and bring this out to the masses. We were hippies. We said, look, let's open source this, give it to everyone, we'll change the world, it'll be awesome, you know. And, you know, hopefully some companies go and make lots of money on it. But that that was the kind of state of mind 2009-2010 for us.
4: Super interesting. David, would you mind sharing a bit more about how you got into the field of big data and what are some of the exciting new, f- new things coming out in the field of big data?
3: Yeah, so uh, a long, long time ago um, in the late uh, two thousand odds, I, I ran the business objects portfolio for SAP, the, the, the stuff that they acquired and ran the analytics business there. Um, and it was a it was a fascinating space, but that would I'd say a couple generations before what we're doing here at Databricks. Uh, you know, there the 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 philosophy was just make the single machine bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, like Ali was saying. Um, and uh, and then that gave birth to Hana and trying to do all of that in memory on one massive machine. Um, and uh, and then and then after that there was Hadoop, Doop. And then Hadoop kind of gave way to the in-memory, you know, capabilities of Spark, and then all the things we've layered on top. And so to see companies go from trying to do everything on one massive machine, to scaling out at web scale, and elastic scale, to now we're seeing customers who are running their entire business on these enhanced data leaks. Oftentimes, even looking at a multi-cloud strategy for all of their data. So from one machine, to thousands of machines, to thousands, you know, to many regions in different clouds, to, you know, multiple clouds with many regions, to manage their entire company's footprint on data is, is quite a, an evolution.
1: So Ali, let's back to you. Uh, what are some of the surprise and challenges uh, as the Spark project evolved as in your involvement with it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges was uh, see that the enterprises uh, were very, very different from, say, Airbnb or Uber or Facebook or Twitter. Uh, You know, they had lots of legacy software and they had their data in, you know, all these different systems, whether it was data warehouses or other sort of, you know, systems where that locked in the data and just getting access to that data was hard. I mean, just getting to the bits itself. You know, was not just something simple. You have to go through lots of sort of, uh, you know, hassle with IT and security. Um, and, you know, it, they were just not set up for getting the same kind of innovations as the rest of these companies that we were seeing. So it kind of became clear soon after we had started Databricks that something different will be needed if we want to really help them innovate the way the Silicon Valley tech companies were doing it. You see, I mean, the Silicon Valley tech companies weren't just doing sort of a couple of use cases around AI or had one group doing it. They were completely data driven like they had every use case on the platform was going off using machine learning you know hundreds of hundreds and they were enabling all these different groups to leverage the data they were data driven Uh, and yeah the state at enterprise was very very different you know at best it was excel mostly Oh, uh, then
1: actually, I'm pretty sure you want to add to that, David. Especially coming from your business objects background of analytics, how, what was the transition like for you? Now that you actually had to shift from the old school SAP HANA style of thinking to that distributed thinking here.
3: Well, you know, I, I said earlier that when you know Ali pulled back the curtain to what customers were doing today with data, it was really eye opening for me. So I had to kind of rethink of things from the basic principles instead of you know carefully cultivating the data you were going to use for your operational systems you had the opportunity to look at all of your data and it just opened up completely new business opportunities completely new revenue opportunities and instead of having you know a security system look at a slice of your data it could look at all of the data on all of your machines instead of you know sampling transactions to look for fraud you could look at all of the outliers in all of your data. So it really revolutionized the way I thought of how to approach data-driven systems and data-driven
4: products. So transitioning from the Spark and distributed nature side of things, how does Delta Lake solve some of these challenges and limitations uh, that Spark could not solve? David, do you want to start with this one?
3: The, uh, so technology and, and, and using technology in enterprise, especially in production, is kind of littered with very tough trade-offs. Um, you can get, you know, uh, low latency and high fidelity from a warehouse, or you can get the the you know the the machine learning algorithms working on all the data in a lake, which is the only way to get the high signal insights from machine learning. Um, but what what uh, you know we Delta Lake emerged from collaboration with uh, customers the top customers that we work with. Um, and it allows you to get that acid transactionality or, or, or uh, the correctness in a data lake. Oftentimes data lakes are kind of a mess because you put everything into them. But to get correctness in a data lake, lets you look at all of the data, but know the quality of the data you're looking at. And then to get the performance on top of that as well, it again, it, it unlocks those business use cases that you just couldn't imagine.
4: Actually, in our previous session, one of the panelists had described exactly what you were referring to as a data salad. There's some good chunks in the salad. To him, it was the meatier chunks. To me, it's the chunks of avocado. But a lot of the salad is just there to fill space and you have to derive meaning from it. Um, And so I definitely understand those challenges that customers are facing. Ali, do you have anything else you want to add on top of that? What are some of the things that Delta was able to solve but Spark could not?
2: Well, I mean, really what it was about was that when we saw what was going on in industry... They were storing massive amounts of data in data lakes which was awesome but um, there were just so many configuration parameters and so many ways to lay it out and so many ways to format your data that it was really hard to get any value of it downstream so the team at databricks the same people that had built spark went back to the drawing board and said what if we were to do it again and this time do it right this time be opinionated about it basically have an opinion that This is the right way because enterprises would like to have some guidance. We shouldn't just let them run loose and get a thousand parameters and configure it all differently. Um, And that's when we came up with Delta. So Delta, the whole idea was, uh, let's look at the top 10 problems that enterprises are facing with data lakes and with Spark, and let's automate them away. And let's have a pre-configured way of solving them. So that was really the essence of it, you know. zooming out. I mean, we can get into the details of how it did that, but the real idea was what if we wanna really make sure that they get value out of these data lakes that they have, which to be honest with you, most of them were failing. Mo- many projects on top of data lakes were failing. They were pulling us in to do professional services to fix the problems they had with the data lakes. Uh, so we just wanted to sort of fix it, automate it with software once, once and for all, instead of you know, having people manually go in and fix these.
1: So, in one of the going with what you just said, Ali, in the, one of our previous sessions, also our panelists of data warehousing luminaries they described their journey from data warehouses to data lakes, and then we brought up the topic of lakehouses. So, from your perspective, can you describe that lakehouse paradigm in your own words?
2: Yeah, it's pretty simple actually. Uh, it's how do you enable large enterprises to become completely data driven and get their data on the data lake in an open format. So that it's not locked in in some proprietary format, it's sitting there, and then it's enabling two downstream use cases mainly. One set of use cases have to do with machine learning, data science, and AI. Can you do that downstream directly on these open data sets? And those machine learning and data science tools, they don't they don't work well with data warehouses or other technologies. They like to work on directly on the files, oftentimes on something like Parquet. Uh, that's what they're built. You know, so, you know data. You know, if you look at data science and machine learning tools. They're not built on top of sql so enable that downstream use case and the other downstream use case you want to enable is bi business intelligence and reporting and those use cases definitely are building on sql so how can you do sql really really well and really fast directly on your data lake so if you have those three elements in one that's a lake house so an open data lake where you have all of your files stored downstream data science that directly works on top of it and then BI and reporting workloads downstream that get really good performance and, and the whole system is sort of manageable. So you have governance so that you can securely do all these things that I said, because that's a big, important topic for most enterprises. They have to make sure that their data, data is locked down.
1: Well, going off exactly what you just said, Ali, I mean, some of those panelists in the previous session had noted they made they sort of did like the concept of Lakehouse, just as you've called out, but they were, they were concerned that it could not be solved by technology alone. So how, how, would you like to elaborate on that from your perspective?
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, the problem, I mean, what I'm saying sounds great, right? If, it, if you could make it work. The problem actually has been technology. So the technological breakthrough hasn't been there to be able to do that in other words to get really really fast sql access directly on data lakes has actually not been possible until just recently Uh, getting transactionality directly on data lakes hasn't been possible until very very recently connecting bi tools with really fast performance hasn't actually been possible until very recently Uh, so there's actually a few technological breakthroughs that are needed the other i would say major thing that you have to solve is these data lakes are really sort of big oceans of files. Okay? Whereas all the SQL downstream use cases, they're actually working off of structured data tables with columns and you can say who has access to which parts of it. So the whole governance and the whole sort of access is on a much higher level. It's at the level of tables and you know, you access it with SQL. How can you marry these two models? In a seamless way, that has been another technological breakthrough that wasn't here until just in the last couple of years. Uh, so I would actually say the technology has been a barrier. Otherwise, everyone would love it if they can have you know one platform for nine things, and it just works out of the box, and it's awesome, and it's fast, and you know you pay for the price of one. Why not? Uh, but it's just been there's been things blacking
0: all right i had to cut it there for time but for those interested this is the data brew podcast from databricks and it's pretty funny because they go into a lake house dance at the end of this episode and it's just pretty entertaining and it shows that you can even make the most boring thing entertaining if you are willing to be a little bit silly